Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. I'm your host, Marty Bennett, and today on the Roundup, we're going to be taking a look at three important questions we've been hearing from international educators over the last few days and the news stories that support and will help shape, I think, our perspective on what, uh, what these answers to the, these questions might be. For those of you that are new to the Roundup, uh, this is our goal each week at uh, Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern to dive into three issues of the day uh, that we can see some movement uh, uh, towards some resolution, potentially posing new questions on how international students' uh, experiences are in the application process, living on campus, thinking about coming to the United States, and all those potential variables involved. We do that each week uh, by first taking a look at the news stories that have popped. Uh, we do that through our newsletter, All the SMIE News Fit to Share, and SMIE stands for Social Media and International Education. That's the name of the business, uh, SMIE Consulting. And we take that newsletter that goes out Monday mornings at 9 a.m. Uh, I've dropped the link to the most recent edition from this past Monday into the comments section on our Facebook page, along with the links to all the stories that we're going to be sharing today that come from that newsletter. But for those that are not, not watching live on Facebook or watching on our YouTube channel or listening on the podcast, please make sure you're subscribing to that newsletter. Uh, you can get to that at smieconsulting.org slash subscribe. Enter your email address and a couple other details, and we'll get that newsletter to you every Monday morning at 9 a.m. free of charge. So the roundup here on Wednesdays goes in-depth to three of the questions that we're getting. And we'll get to those in just a minute, but thanks again to everybody who's made uh, the Roundup part of their weekly journey in international education, whether it's uh, listening to it while you're working out, walking or running, uh, whether it's uh, part of your uh, Wednesday ritual of uh, catching up with what we're doing live here on Facebook at 1 p.m. Eastern or catching us on repeat on YouTube or the Facebook page for SMIE Consulting. Thanks for being, making us a part of your journey. So, so glad to be a part of yours. Now, let's get first to the question. Number one, and the one that's at the top of the top of minds for all international admissions professionals in the United States this year. Will there be an increase in new international students this fall? So we're talking fall 2021. And the answer to that question is it depends. Our favorite answer in, in admission circles, internationally at least, in the U.S. Uh, and there's a lot of data that's uh, certainly showing that interest has certainly picked back up in the United States uh, over the last uh, four or five months. A lot of that is due to the transition in presidential administrations that occurred after the election in November. Uh, but there's also uh, what Alan Goodman at IIE referenced in November, the pent-up demand of those students that were not able to enroll last fall, uh, fall 2020, by either coming uh, to the U.S. physically, they couldn't because their program was going to be completely online, so they stayed in their home countries. And that may be 20% of our uh, enrolled, new enrolled, newly enrolled students this year uh, may have been uh, or are likely to be fully online students from their home countries. And that's a very different uh, model for U.S. Uh, international educators to get their heads around. They're not counted in the SEVIS numbers for currently enrolled students. They can't because they're physically not in the United States, but they are allowed to to obviously continue their, their program or begin their program online and then hopefully this fall transition to fully in person as many U.S. campuses are, are moving that way. 
but we're so we're seeing that pent-up demand for those that maybe took a deferral, uh, which might have been some 40,000 students from the uh, IIE snapshot survey that we saw last last November. Uh, there and certainly there are those that are now more more highly engaged and interested in coming to the U.S. because of the change in tone of the of the new administration and a much more favorable uh, approach towards immigration. Yet there, there are still some obstacles, and we've talked about that in the past. We'll get to those in a couple of minutes. But the question is, are they coming? Uh, and is the interest there? And I, I will say that I do believe that this fall will be a very, very much different fall than we had last fall. It can't get any worse. Uh, but it will certainly be an improvement. Uh, the question is, how much will it be an improvement? Uh, I'm pointing to three different pieces in this to answer this first question today. The first is a Forbes article by the current president of Pace University in New York, and it's entitled "International Students Are Coming Back to the to the U.S. and We Can't Wait to Welcome Them Back." And that 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 attitude and that sentiment, I think, is shared by all international educators in the U.S. And it's encouraging to to see a university president being as uh, forceful with that kind of a tone and uh, positive tone that uh, we are on our way back uh, to where we should be internationally. So in the, he references what the challenges, obviously, the last four years with uh, coming here, uh, despite all the rhetoric uh, from, the, from the previous administration. Uh, that's, uh, that has, uh, shows the, the real declines in the new international students we've seen since 2016. Uh, then the pandemic changed everything, obviously physically made it impossible. Not even those that wanted to come could come. It was impossible uh, during the pandemic for, for most all students. That uh, new the number of international students in the United States fell by 18% last year. And that's a total number, not new. Uh, new numbers are even, are even worse. Uh, the challenge has been, as he points out in his, uh, his article, even worse with U.S. consulates, this is his quote, with U.S. consulates worldwide shuttered by the pandemic, the number of visas issued for newly enrolled international students dropped a whopping 72%. And that's, that's, I think, more in line with what I was, why I was actually surprised that new international enrollments were only down 43%, according to the IIE snapshot survey last fall. The reality is because so many more U.S. consulates were closed and still are in major source markets in China and India, other than emergency appointments only, which are never going to uh, be able to process the full extent of international student interest in the United States. So I think there's some real value here in looking at uh, what, uh, and he makes the point, and I, I appreciate him making that point about consulates being closed, because that is, has been essentially been a double blow. Uh, you had um, institutions that were suffering from four years of rhetoric from the previous administration, and uh, then having the pandemic on top of that is a double double whammy, really. Uh, then we're seeing the answer, uh, and he makes the point in his uh, in his article. They want to be here. They have a desire to be in the United States. That quality of U.S. higher education has shine has been able to shine through all of the mess uh, that we've experienced recently, and that is uh, international graduate school applicants. He makes uh, the point at pace. We're up 11 percent year on year. Uh, they had 200 new international students enroll in the spring semester, despite all the travel restrictions. 
that uh, undergraduates' inquiries are up 6%, applications are up 3% in the similar time frame for fall 2021. So it's encouraging for to see that those kind of stats from a university president on their current the current state of international applicants to their campus, uh, particularly those he makes reference to particularly those coming for STEM fields and how uh, how much of an advantage they have international students have in the United States with work experience after graduation, and really I think there's a, there's a lot of value in what he uh, what he points out, and he makes that makes that makes some very astute arguments and. I'm uh, really happy to see a university president making that, not from one of the elite schools, uh, making the kind of um, kind of bold predictions, but also showing some real supportive information uh, to, to, to prospective students that we uh, are uh, rolling out the welcome Odyssey references uh, for international students. Uh, it's good for everybody involved, frankly, in terms of our, our domestic students, our colleges, the students themselves from overseas. And let's help him get there is his, his final thought, and I, sir, I couldn't agree more. Now, uh, another supporting piece to, to the uh, our international students coming back and will there be an increase this fall uh, is coming from a Pi News article that references a report from BridgeU uh, that uh, catalogs over 120,000 student applicants, applications, not students, uh, applications submitted but to the to U.S. higher education by BridgeU students, so ones that they have in their uh, their their bailiwick, uh, and that includes international students in 120 countries. That uh, they their data for their students, uh, these again just BridgeU students, uh, shows an overall application decrease by international students to the U.S. Uh, the number of applications per student has risen, and that may be due primarily to the to the, the test optional trend that we've talked about uh, quite a lot here on the Roundup and how that impacts international students in terms of their choices for where to apply. Uh, seeing many institutions that are coming out now with their accepted student rates uh, for this year, particularly the elite schools or getting even more elite in terms of their, uh, the decreases in their admit rates uh, that would profile the, just the huge number of uh, additional applications they processed this year due to being test op optional largely. So uh, the, the point of the PI article related to the BridgeU students says that international students are applying earlier. They're not using restrictive uh, early decision or restrictive early action programs where they're tied down to a particular school. They're keeping their options open. And many of those are doing that because uh, they're applying test optional uh, at two schools that uh, might they'd be happy to go to any number of them. Uh, so this is interesting to see. Uh, and he makes uh, makes the, gives a little kind of geographical uh, breakdown uh, that in this article, although selective private institutions and large public universities have increased this year. Application numbers, international applications, again, this, doing just these BridgeU students. The data seems to tell a different story for less selective institutions across the country, particularly in the Northeast, Midwest, and Mid-Atlantic, according to the article. Universities in North Carolina, Virginia, and Michigan uh, saw the biggest increases in applications uh, for these bridge use, from these BridgeU students. But there is uh, U.S. Uh, universities, uh, particularly state institutions, because of the declining numbers in domestic high school graduates, uh, international student enrollments is even, their argument is even that they're even more vital to U.S. institutions now. 
So uh, we'll, we'll see what happens with this one, but certainly, again, this is a group of Bridge U students, certainly representing a fairly substantial chunk of applications, international student applications this year, so we'll see where that goes. But perhaps one of the most interesting um, uh, kind of pieces of data analysis that I've, I found, which is fascinating, is uh, from Shorelight. And they have analysis, uh, uh, kind of a, a chart that tracks analysis of U.S. COVID policy on U.S. bound international students. And that's both travel, international travel restrictions as well as consular uh, restrictions. So I'm glad that they're, they're taking into account these, these factors. And they, um, they break the kinds of institutions down in the United States to, um, to categories, uh, kind of a, a not a pie chart, but a, a graph where you've got total estimated international enrollments on the left, uh, and then percentage of international enrollments from banned and or restricted countries. And again, these are uh, the countries uh, where currently uh, travel to and from the United States is banned. There are, uh, it's hard not to think of countries that aren't banned right now, but there are certainly some that have been, uh, uh, certainly some countries that are have been that were banned initially uh, from travelers to and from that are still um, still still on that list. Uh, some have been have been taken off the list, but some are. And those are um, China's certainly one of them. Brazil's been one of them. Uh, and China obviously is the number one source market for students. So the, they've had to come through third party countries. So we're we're looking at this chart. Uh, they have broken down to low, risk, high volume and institutions where uh, the major greater majority of their students are, uh, though they have a high number of international students, they are, uh, they don't have many uh, or a significant chunk of their enrolled international students from high risk countries uh, that are on the ban list uh, because uh, because of because of the current uh, current restrictions, uh, you also have the low risk, low volume those uh, institutions that haven't become overly dependent on international students, uh, and don't have many from the particular affected countries. Then you have the high risk, high volume, and those are the ones that are heavily dependent on China and India uh, for their international students. And there aren't many that aren't dependent on those, but if you have high volumes, uh, then certainly that's gonna have a greater financial impact on your bottom line at your institution. And then you have the uh, high risk, uh, low volume. So still get a percentage uh, that uh, from your international students that are maybe not 10% of your enrollments, they're only 1% to 2% of your enrollments, then you might have, but you get them heavily from China and India, they're still, that's a high risk, but you don't have a lot of, a lot of students at your, at your institution from those, or overall uh, in your student body. So that, it's a real, it's a real interesting data point, and uh, they, I would recommend checking it out. Again, I'm dropping the links to these in the, uh, it does have an interactive element to it, so uh, you can see, uh, you can search by public or private. You can see highest degrees offered. You can see some other uh, sectors, so ranked schools, U.S. news rankings, and, and such. So really fascinating. Uh, it does have, um, it shows you which institutions, uh, though it doesn't give you, uh, on the publicly available chart, doesn't give you which institutions these are. Uh, but you can uh, you, you can certainly if you play around with the filters enough, you can get a sense on on who, which institutions are in that high risk, high high volume category. So 
where you have, and it also interestingly puts the estimated annual tuition spend from students from those countries uh, at those institutions. So I think the, uh, there's some real, real interesting data here. I think the, uh, one of the, one of the, I think we see one institution that has over 2,400 in number of international students, 89.5% of their international students are from, uh, from the banned restricted countries, that would result in an $81 million loss uh, for uh, the annual tuition spend, just the tuition spend from students from those banned countries if they're not able to come. So a lot of interesting data in this report. So one of the more interesting ones I've seen that gets down to financial impact per institution. It's sort of like uh, NAFSA's economic uh, impact tool. Uh, by institution if this, uh, and, and it categorizes students based on uh, COVID and travel restrictions. So interesting to see this uh, coming out um, from, from the folks at Shorelight, but uh, certainly some great data to sink your teeth into, definitely recommend it. Now, next up, let's, let's ask the right question here. Uh, for are you as an institution and in your international admissions uh, efforts, are you on the right platforms for students? That's our second question of the day. Uh, and this, uh, this question is, uh, sort of uh, covers a topic that, um, that is part of my, uh, what I've, I've been talking about on, this, uh, on the Roundup for a number of months now. It's called the six P's of strategic international enrollment management. That's my, my philosophy, uh, as it were, on international education, international admissions, international recruitment, and the life cycle of international students. Uh, I'm doing work with colleges uh, across the country now on developing life cycle planning towards international students, uh, where it's not just the prospect through to admitted and enrolled piece that you need to worry about, it's the full life cycle through to current student, to uh, upcoming graduate, and then alumni status, and how your university responds to these students during throughout that from prospect to alumni define, defines your overall success in, uh, in bringing in quality international students, maintaining them on your campus, and graduating successful alumni. Uh, so this is what, uh, what we're talking about here with the six Ps of strategic international enrollment management. And the series I've been doing for IDP Connect, uh, we're on uh, this month, we're on uh, number three, the third P, and that's platforms. We talked about perspective uh, and how you need to have both an internal perspective of how your institutions uh, values, mission, statements, strategic plans are overall geared towards international and what you can kind of hang your hat on in there. But more importantly, having a global perspective that informs your decision making uh, for messaging, for where, where you recruit, who you're recruiting against, uh, having that knowledge of the globally competitive market for international students and who you're up against, frankly, is important to know as you move forward. We talked about planning and the importance of uh, basing your plans on data. And talk, when you talk about enrollment management, having successful, successfully uh, created enrollment plans, you need to have data that backs up why you do what you do or why you focus on certain things. Uh, and having targets uh, that you're setting as part of that. You're setting your SMART goals uh, as, a, as it relate to international enrollment. And doing that over a three to five year period, not just a, here we're, this year we're doing this, next year we're doing that, and they don't ne necessarily connect. 
so and have a vision for where you where you're taking your plan. So we're talking about in this episode, in this edition uh, the third element, and that's choosing the right platforms to be on. And in my in my piece, I make the make reference to what a platform is, and that's uh, uh, a best-selling award-winning author Geraldine Solon uh, called a platform is what defines your visibility with your audience. And for, for those that have known me since my Education USA days, you know one of my most important mantras I have uh, the top of any conversation I have about recruitment uh, with stu of students overseas with international audiences, it is live where your audiences live. And that's something I've been uh, preaching for over 10 years now, uh, 13 years even. And part of that is really understanding where you're students, where your parents, where your influencers, that could be counselors, agents, Education USA advisors, where they spend their time online. And we know that people spend their time online. Uh, there's no doubt about that. When uh, you look at the uh, vision for the world or, or the numbers for the current world, uh, we are Social's Digital 2021 report that came out earlier. I've referenced this several times. Uh, their data shows 53.6% of the world of the 7.8 billion people in the world, so that's over 4 billion people are on, are considered active on social media. And that meant in 2020, a million new social media users came online every day, 13% annual growth rate. Uh, and you, the, when they come online for social media, they're not just coming online typically for one platform, they're on multiple platforms. So they use some, obviously, more than others, and that's important to know uh, where they spend the majority of their time. And uh, you want to talk about uh, what's important uh, in, obviously, social media, and that's, uh, that's something that I think is a no-brainer in terms of where you have to have a presence as an institution if you're going to be serious about recruiting international students, particularly in the lead gen side, but also throughout the process. There are opportunities uh, on different platforms, perhaps. Uh, you might be talking more... Uh, on more broad scale social ads, Facebook ads, whatever it might be in different countries that uh, you're talking about recruiting in that you use for lead gen, but then you're moving to more uh, contained and whether it's a Facebook group or a WhatsApp group you establish for prospects from certain countries, an admitted student group. Uh, these are the things that throughout the, throughout the, the life cycle of an applicant to enrolled, you're going to have opportunities to connect in more uh, private ways, in ways that uh, really um, show your connection with students. So choosing those platforms is important, knowing where they are is, is, is obviously where you start, and de deciding which ones you're going to prioritize. If Obviously, key markets that you want to be in. Uh, in China, you know you're not going to be on Facebook and YouTube to, to reach that market directly. Uh, you're going to be having a presence on WeChat. You're going to be thinking about QQ. You're going to be thinking about um, being on the, uh, TikTok, the Dubai, Dubai uh, pro, uh, platform parent company in, in China. Uh, having presence there is important. And, and how you leverage that, having locally hosted uh, website content in native languages. We'll talk about that more when we get to personalization in the next P, uh, or after or in P number five, uh, next we do plat uh, partners. But what, sh the, what technology has allowed you to do uh, is really reach students where, where they are, uh, much more directly in ways that you've, you could never have imagined. Uh, certainly this past year has taught us uh, many colleges who 
previously ride on all physical recruitment and very minor uh, digital footprint, they've had to completely upend the way they do things. And that is something that uh, we really see uh, international students uh, clamoring for is opportunities to connect uh, with, uh, with you uh, and with, with students at your institutions as well. Uh, through online means. So we're, we're talking about different, different ways uh, to, to identify platforms. Uh, we talk about taking a digital first approach as really the must do uh, this, this year has, uh, has taught us that. And in terms of uh, what, uh, what, what we can look forward to in the, in the coming year is you look at, when we say digital first, why is that important? Uh, <clears throat> is you look at um, the time people spend on their, on their devices. The average over the, over the globe uh, is anywhere from, has grown from six hours and 20 minutes uh, four, six years ago to almost seven hours by the end of 2020. So we're spending more time on our devices. Uh, we're scrolling through different social media. Uh, we're looking at uh, different platforms uh, when we're doing that. Uh, we're spending that long, almost seven hours a day on our devices. So if you're not taking digital first approach uh, to not only social media, uh, but also to your website and how relevant and accessible your content is, uh, you're missed opportunities. Uh, in terms of what's, uh, what I also recommend besides uh, living where your audiences live, taking a digital first approach is, uh, we're talking about brand building, is using a multi-channel communication strategy where you, you can't go all in on Facebook uh, on, a, on a global level and expect to reach every audience in exactly the way that they want to be reached uh, throughout the enrollment cycle. That you must have a multi-channel communications approach. That you have an email comm plan. You have a social media strategy that is uh, maybe has um, a, a blend, depending on the country, you might be focusing on Facebook and, and Instagram in may, many countries in the world, but then China, we, different platforms there. If you're talking about different stages of the application funnel, you're going to be using maybe perhaps more messaging apps rather than, uh, than more of the short-form video content that you might find on Instagram, TikTok, or, or YouTube Shorts now. Uh, those platforms... Um, do allow you flexibility though. That's the one thing. It's not that you have to be an expert in every single one of those, but you should make the content that you use at different stages during the funnel, repurpose that across those multiple channels where you can have a video uh, message from a current student that you in, that talks about their experience in transitioning to campus life. Uh, obviously that functions very well at the end when you're doing pre-departure orientations. You can have another video message from a different student from a different country, different major, that talks about why they chose your institution. A video message that can be on a YouTube channel, can be on Instagram, can be on Facebook, can be repurposed for TikTok, can be sent embedded into, a, into an email message in an existing comp plan. There are ways to, once you have that content, that's gold, that video content especially, that you can repurpose from students, from faculty, from alumni. There are ways to embed that in your messaging across channels. Why do you do multiple channels? Because even within a given country, not every student is going to take in information the same way. 
Some love e emails, not as many as we think, but some love emails and they'll, they'll, they'll eat that up all day and twice on Sunday. Then there are going to be others that will only get their content from Facebook or, and others that only will be on Instagram. Others in China, obviously, only on WeChat. Uh, there are ways that they, are, they will have a preference for how they take in information. So if you're repurposing that, obviously email is the one that goes directly to a student. You can message in some of these social apps, particularly if it's a focus group. But if you're looking at ways to repurpose your content across the spectrum of the channels available to you, if you don't take a multiple channel approach towards your recruitment strategies, to your communications out to prospective students, it's a missed opportunity where you could be missing 10, 20, 30, 40, 50% or more of your prospective audience in terms of reaching them where they are, when they are, and on what platforms uh, they are spending their time. So the, the article certainly uh, goes into a lot, of the, a lot of the depth there on those three areas, uh, living where they live, taking a digital first approach and utilizing multiple channels. So I do encourage you to check that out as, as you're making your way uh, through um, your planning for the, for the next academic year or longer. Now finally, we're going to stop uh, with this last topic, one that I'm sure we're going to be hearing a ton more of as more, con more colleges and universities make decisions, but that's the idea of vaccines for this fall. To require vaccines or not, that is a serious question. And this is something that we're, it's becoming out there in terms of uh, the legal and ethical issues, thorny logistical problems about vaccinations. The, the, the challenge is, and is, is probably a good one, in fact, that we are going to have available, already have available in the United States, three approved vaccinations, um, Moderna, Pfizer, and Johnson & Johnson, the Johnson & Johnson being the only single shot dose that is largely effective in preventing serious, uh, not necessarily preventing getting COVID, but uh, preventing hospitalization and death from it. Uh, and that's the goal of any successful uh, vaccination, is not eliminating it entirely other than maybe polio, but eliminating the, the deadly consequences of the virus. And we've seen that obviously with the volume of Americans that have, have uh, died in the last year. But what we see here in the role of, um, of vaccinations on campus, we've got vaccination as, as kids growing up uh, in the United States. That's part of what we're used to. There's, despite the anti-vaxxer crowd that are certainly rearing their heads uh, quite a bit in the last uh, last few months as these have rolled out in the U.S., those that don't want to be controlled by the government uh, see this as a threat to their liber civil liberties, and which is a lot of hogwash as far as I'm concerned. But when you when you when you get right down to it, what can colleges require. You think you saw uh, this week Rutgers University has already said, they've made, been the first to come out and say, we're going to require vaccinations of all students. There'll be exceptions for medical or religious reasons. Uh, but they, they haven't thought it through completely yet because they don't necessarily know, because they, they, they're saying that they have to have a U.S. approved vaccine. And if that's the case, then you're not going to get any of your Chinese students on campus, are you? Because they, uh, in China, they've been taking uh, var variations of a Chinese vaccine that hasn't been approved by the United States. 
and likely won't. Uh, they, they rolled that out before uh, any of ours were, were, were really approved here. Um, the efficacy and the, uh, the trials and all that, China doesn't really share that data well with, uh, with others. So that will be a significant stumbling block if they don't come up with a policy that also includes international students, because this, this one certainly does not at Rutgers. And colleges are going, I've, I've seen some colleges say that we're not going to require something that is, because all the, all the variations of the vaccine we've had approved are for emergency use. Uh, obviously the pandemic is an emergency use. But uh, to require it, uh, they say they wouldn't require it until it's approved for regular use, like a, a chicken box or measles vaccine or uh, measles uh, rubella, measles, mumps, and rubella, MMR. Uh, those vaccines that have been around for decades, this is something that, uh, because those are regularly approved for, for use, even in kids, especially in kids. Uh, and most of the vaccines now are only being allowed for uh, adults well, 16 and above. Uh, and that's certainly uh, for, that's certainly in the college age demo, but they're not, up, colleges are gonna say, well, not, not, uh, not that they're not re approved for regular use, only emergency use, and we can't require something if it's only approved for regular uh, emergency use. So there's a lot of legal issues, a lot of ethical issues that are going to be grappled with as colleges make decisions on whether to, what and to require and, and or not. Uh, that is something we'll certainly keep you posted on on how this is going to be, how these specific policies will impact international students. Because uh, there are certainly some serious uh, potential drawbacks uh, if uh, institutions hold firm to a policy like if they go vaccine routes as required that Rutgers are using uh, that would impact sizable chunks of their incoming students uh, from China. Uh, so that's something we'll, we'll, we'll t certainly take a look at in the months to come, I'm sure. But for now, I want to say thank you for being a part of the weekly roundup, uh, midweek roundup here at SMIE Consulting, and we look forward to chatting with you again in the weeks and months to come. Have a great day.